0: Deborah Richardson, welcome to Conversations with Code 9. Thank you, Tiff. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Oh, it's a pleasure to chat. I was just doing some research on you this morning because here's the process, everybody listening. Mark Thomas lines me up with a fabulous guest and makes an introduction and I get excited. And then before the conversation, I go and do some digging around and find out who I'm speaking to. And Deborah, you're you're an interesting and impressive and multifaceted human, indeed. I think you're
1: boosting me up a little bit, Tiff. I think
0: I'm just an ordinary girl that kind of wants to make a bit of a difference to the world. But thank well, that's, you. That's nice. It's a, you know everyone seems to perceive themselves as. Ordinary and not that interesting, but you know when you when you're ready to host a conversation like this, and there's so many avenues that are like oh, and this oh, and this too oh, and this. It's a funny thing. I don't think I've ever googled myself, so I don't really know what's out there or not out there. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a shot, mate. You've done you've done good on the old Googs. <laughs> good. <laughs> Tell us a bit about yourself. What are you What are you doing now? What are you What is your current role? What is life so, for So current role, I'm in charge of a whole
1: sales team for Australia for um, an organisation called Ryman Healthcare, and we run retirement living and aged care across our villages in Australia and New Zealand, mm. but I look after the sales team in Australia. So we've got seven
0: operational villages now and many more in the pipeline. Mm. And you, this is the career that you started after a decade in policing, is that correct? Yeah, um, not immediately after, actually. I came from the funeral industry, so I don't know whether you found that one I did find that one. I (laughs) did find that one. I I didn't know if any of these crossed over at the same time or what. Yeah, so let's get the... Was Let's very lucky
1: that. to have um, been headhunted directly from the funeral industry into this role at Ryman Healthcare and, and actually wasn't looking for a position at the time um, and got one of those bizarre emails out of the blue saying, hey, Deborah, and this long lengthy email, um, are you in the market for a job? And my first thoughts were, well, I'm not in the market for a job and it came via LinkedIn. So, I actually ignored it for about three weeks and then <laughs> for some reason came home to my husband and went, got this bizarre email a couple of weeks ago and I think. I'll go back and have a look at it. And when I got to the end of it, there was a recruiter's name and number. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I don't know why they found me, but I rang her. And the first thing she said to me was, what took you so long to call? (laughs) So it was, I think it was spam, one of those spam emails that you get. And lo and behold, after about five or six interviews, found myself um, with another incredible care organisation.
0: Ah, oh, so good. we'll come we're definitely going to come back to policing and talk about that a lot. But what drew you into the funeral industry from there? Yeah, that's um a really interesting one. I had spent some
1: time at the age newspaper in The Herald Sun, and when I was at the age, um, I actually was in charge of the general classifieds area, and I produced a uh, insert that went into the newspaper once a month on a Saturday. And um, I focused on the funeral industry all those years ago, just because I found it quite fascinating and interesting, and certainly not a topic that people ever wanted to talk about. And so um had some experience with connecting with funeral directors and understood that it was a, a, a critical industry, but a really important industry. And so mm. why did I end up there? Well, my mum died. <laughs> and when she passed away, um, I wouldn't say Tiff that I had a bad experience at her funeral, but I certainly didn't have a good one. I didn't come away going, that was the best celebration that we could ever give, you know, the most important person to me at that stage in my life, which was my mum. And so I started to reflect on where I was at, at the time. And um, I guess I'm always drawn back to industries that care for people. And Mm. um, I sat back and thought, you know, I might, give this a whirl. And I, to be honest, I didn't know whether I could handle death every day. I mean, as a police officer, you obviously come across it. And so I certainly had the background and experience from dealing with those experiences, but to reflect on whether I could actually handle death every day, I didn't know whether I could, but I was at a stage in my life where I thought I'm looking for something else and I'm looking for something that matters again. And so I reached out to a couple of the funeral directors that I knew and, um, pretty much within two weeks, found myself as
0: branch manager in charge of um, white lady funerals out at Rosebud and Mornington. Wow. It's really, it is like it warms my heart when I speak to people both in aged care, especially aged care, disability care and um, and funeral type yeah. work and hearing, when I hear people that work in those industries who genuinely have compassion and love for what they do it like I have goosebumps right now because Uh you know it's if there are three areas where that is very much needed for people then those are it it's amazing I'd love to reflect on you know given your values around that and falling into that type of work I'd love to hear a little bit about the world of policing for you and how how that was Yeah, what a what a ride it was, and and like you joined the police force when there were two percent of women in the force back in the eighties. Yep. Yeah. So pretty much no one, (laughs) and certainly a lot of places that I went to, there'd
1: never been a female at all. Yeah. And so a really uh, tough time, I would I would say, to join, but a time that um, gave me the most. Resilience that you can find in a person to keep going and to not, um, to not let things knock you over. And, um, I had an interesting conversation when I joined my recent job with the CEO and, and he asked me, you know, what does resilience mean to you, Deb? And I said, resilience is all about when you get knocked over, that you find a way to pick yourself up again and you keep going. And to join a police force at 18 and a half from a female that had failed at school. Tiff, I failed year eleven. I went on to do year eleven, and by that stage, all my female friends had left, and had gone into hairdressing or, you know, nursing or those types of careers. And um, so I did my last year, and I actually failed. And at 18, decided I want to join the police force. And first of all, thought that's going to be a really hard thing for me to do because I couldn't
0: study. What made you think, yeah? What, hang on. What made you think back then, with so few women in the police force, what made you think that was even an option? Well, I, I
1: my brother was in the police force, and um, that was kind of the first family member that had ever joined. Mm. And I used to go and visit him at the police academy every Wednesday night oh. with my mum, <laughs> and um, and we chat to him. Yeah. And just through that course of him in his training, I, I understood at that stage there was about three hundred and twenty different areas that you could go into. And mm. my first job straight after school was working for the Gas and Fuel Corporation in customer service, where there was like hundred and forty women. And it was answering the telephones and day after day, you're getting yelled at, but you're really not doing a anything that matters, but certainly not anything interesting. And um, and so I started to reflect on, hang on a minute, 320 kind of different areas. Surely there's something in there that I could do. And so I applied and um, went through, it was about six months from the time of my application to the time that I got accepted. So I was 18 and a half when I entered the academy. And in those days, we were sworn in as officers on the very first day. And um, that was an interesting time too. But yeah, it was um, something I was really proud of. And I struggled obviously, from someone that had no academic background at all at that stage um, to come in and all of a sudden have to be studying law and understand what that even meant and understand how to study was a huge effort for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when I graduated, I came second last in my squad, but I was so thrilled as being the youngest person. And I think there was five women in my squad um, to actually graduate and when I went back eighteen months later, I, after having some of the street smarts that you get when you're out on the road, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I came third in my squad and topped the final law exam. So,
0: oh. <laughs> <yeah>. wow, <laughs> went
1: from one extreme to the other.
0: Yeah. When you look at you back then, and when I ask this question the way I ask it, I hope nobody takes offence, but you were very softly spoken and you do not portray someone who who to me feel I don't feel like I'm speaking to someone who was spent 10 years as a police officer especially someone who was you know one of those first women in a male dominated role and when you reflect on Deb back then and Deb now do you can do you get a sense of how those i guess careers and environments and circumstances shaped you a hundred percent, Tiff. You know, I with
1: undoubtedly without if I hadn't have joined the police force, I wouldn't be the person I am today because I think that Gave me life skills, and the funny thing was, when I left after ten years, um, I only left because I'd gone on to have my second son at that stage, and there was no part-time policing involved. In fact, I was nominated to be one of the first women on a trial—excuse <clears throat> me—a trial for part-time policing, and then got pregnant and was told I was no longer eligible, <laughs> which was kind <laughs> of funny. <laughs> but um, but I look back. I look back now. I, I suppose in hindsight and with the maturity that I have now and the experience that I have now, I look back and go, I'd probably be a better copper today than what I was back then. But having said that, everything that I've, I've achieved has been because of those 10 years of experience that you cannot get anywhere else.
0: Mm, mm. Now, in the very early days, you were exposed to one of one of the, a pretty well-known incident, the Russell Street bombing. I was. Tell us about that. So you were only 21, like you were a baby. Yeah, absolute baby. Didn't think so at the time, but
1: definitely now I go back and go, yeah, I was. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the 27th of March, 1986, and it was 1.01 p.m. that bomb blew, and it happened to be Easter Thursday, so the day before Good Friday. And I was on a one o'clock shift. I was working in the district training office at Russell Street at the time. And normally on a one o'clock shift, I would walk through the south door entrance and get in at one o'clock. I'd kind of not get in any earlier, but I'd get in ready to start my shift at one. That day, for some unknown reason, I came through the back of Russell Street, which I'd never done before in my couple of years of working at Russell Street. I got in early. So I arrived at 20 to one that day. And I walked into the district training office, which was the very next office beside the south door entrance. And I sat down at my desk. And at 101, the bomb blew. And my initial reaction was, um, I won't quite say the word I was just going to say. My initial reaction was, I think I've just been shot because oh, wow. I was blown off my chair to the other side of the room against the wall there was a red flash the room filled with smoke the windows started caving in around me and I'm looking down on my body to try and dust myself off from what I thought I would be covered in blood oh. and um yeah still remember it vividly you know Tiff when they say that time stands still on those particular moments I could Absolutely, a hundred percent. Say to you, that's what happened because every single step of that, from the moment of the blast, is just so vivid in my mind today. You know, some thirty odd years later. Um, so I got up and I ran out into the corridor and and then realised that everyone else was running around, going, "What the hell just happened?" Um, my sergeant saw me and he goes, "Are you okay?" And I said, "I'm fine, boss." And um, then there was another five explosions between the the initial blast and then, by the time that we evacuated and got outside, and we found out later they were petrol tanks and things blowing up because it was it was almost like a concertina effect of, of where the car was positioned, which was right out the front of the South Tour entrance, um, and it and it was just this concertina effect as as things copped the blast, you know, these petrol tanks and things would blow. And so for, I don't know for how long, for several moments, I was running up and down the corridor thinking, okay, we've got to evacuate people, understanding that every other room on that floor, you know, all other rooms and doors and windows and things were caved in. And we ran outside into Mackenzie Street, which was that tiny little street or laneway, really, opposite um, Russell Street. And there was about three hundred odd coppers standing around, going, "What? The, what the just happened? Mm. And um, are we all okay?" And um, it was really bizarre because none of us were prepared for a bomb. We didn't think, in in the history of the police force, that that was going to ever be possible in Melbourne, mm. let alone Australia. And um, and we really. We didn't have the skills. We weren't equipped to know what to do and, and where to go from here. And I've never been so excited in my life to see a group of men run down the stairs from the IOOF building opposite, and they happened to be the special operations group. And all of a sudden, we had a purpose, and they, they were there, and they went, right, you go here, and you go there, and you do this, and block off that, and move back. And so, we were all given this job to do and um, really relieved that someone had taken control. Mm. Then the rumours started tiff, and um, and there were some terrible rumours going around from police person to police person. We didn't have mobile phones or anything like that in those days, and people were saying, oh, there's five killed, and, you know, there's this and that, and I won't even describe to you some of the rumours that were getting to us because they were pretty horrific. They weren't true, but they were pretty horrific at the time. And so I stood on the corner of... Um, I don't even know where it was, the back of Mackenzie Street, for about the next eight hours um, until I realised I couldn't stand up anymore and was leaning against a, a brick building when an inspector drove past and he said, What the bloody hell are you doing, policewoman? And I said, I was there, boss. And he goes, Jesus Christ, get in the car, and off I was carted to hospital.
0: Eight hours, eight hours standing. What were you
1: doing? Just blocking off traffic, not not allowing people to get through. I did leave my post for about 10 minutes, about two hours after the blast. And I walked into a radio station that was in Mackenzie Street and asked if I could use the phone. And I rang my husband, who happened to be working at Brighton Police Station that day. And he answered the phone like just hello. And I went, it's me. I'm okay." And um, he goes, I'm coming in. And I said, you won't get in. And then he didn't hear from me for another, you know, six hours or so later and it was a call from Box Hill Hospital telling him to come oh. and get me.
0: I've got – I'm covered in goosebumps. So many things to say. One, one, my very first guest on the show was Gary Wilson Flipper and he was in the bomb squad and he attended the, the Russell Street bombing. So when you spoke about that, I had this vision of Flipper running down the stairs. I was like, yeah, Flipper. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was an insane day and it was, um, you know, I, I didn't realise how lucky I was until I returned to work. So I, I went out to the hospital. In those days, they didn't know how to treat back injuries. So I was put in a wheelchair and told to go home to bed, which I did. And then about eight or so days later, I basically looked at my mum and dad I was 21 and still living at home and said to them if I don't get out of bed today I'm actually never going to get out of bed Mm. and drag myself out of bed and and went back to work and in some ways I also remember that day that I returned to work and I I was really fearful of walking past cars Mm. and um Mm. and quite scared about going back into the building again and um you know, I still vividly remember those feelings too. And I walked into my office and the bomb squad were in there still. And they looked at me and they said, oh, geez, you were lucky. And I said, yeah, I know I was. And they went, no, do you realize how lucky you were? And I said, what do you mean? And it turned out somebody had placed a piece of chipboard against my window that I hadn't seen on the day that I arrived into work on the 27th of March. And uh, that was actually what saved my life. Oh, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, crazy. Still don't
0: know why it was there or how it got there, but um, I had I someone just, looking after me. I don't know if I can live the rest of my life without solving that. Did you feel like <laughs> that? Do you feel like that? Do you know, I, I think it was on the 25th anniversary um,
1: that I started to go, have I imagined that if, you know, like, because you tell the story so often and and you start to tell it, matter-of-factly, you know, mm. because to let the emotion comes in changes things. So you tell it step-by-step step, like I've just done. Yep. And I started to go, have I actually imagined that that piece of board was actually truly there? And I went mm. looking for my police
0: statement and um, and it was in black and white. <sighs> on on what you just said, um, is there is there a veil you pull down for you to matter-of-factly talk about this, do you? And if you think about this event or talk about it in a maybe a non-public forum or just you know with friends or family, does that like does it have a completely different feeling? It's really funny. I think I yeah you know, I talked about
1: resilience at the start, and I think this particular event, I made a conscious decision that I was not going to be a victim. And and I made that decision the day I got out of bed was actually the the day I made that decision. And I chose to be a survivor and I wasn't going to let this get to me in any way, shape or form. I look back now and go, Mm. I've definitely got remnants of PTSD. Um, And and I say that when I think about, um, I can't stand thunderstorms. I hate a car backfiring in front of Mm. me. Um, If there's other bombings in the world, I kind of go, okay and I've got to take a bit of a moment to absorb what's going on um, but at the same time it gives me compassion and understanding of those events around the world and um and and absolutely it's a coping mechanism for me to
0: relive it in that step-by-step process and mm. and to- did you have to learn how to do that or did that was that a kind of an innate protective mechanism that you found just happened? Or did you have to go sort of really develop a way to separate? I think there's no doubt I had to dig deep, um, you know, but
1: I, but I think even at 21 years old, I knew that life goes on and or it doesn't and you decide to choose one way or another. And if my experience can help one other person – and or situations like this, then that's what I was set here to do for some mm. reason. For some reason, my life was saved. And um, and I think you, you build that conscious effort to turn such a tragic situation into something good.
0: Mm. I want to th- just even just now before we even finish, thank you for for speaking about it and sh- putting it out there and sharing it because it does, it does, it's not just a wow factor of, oh, let's talk to someone that's been through something crazy. There is such power in what we can learn and draw from other people's experiences um, and I think it's important for people listening to know that, you know, what it takes for you to share that still. Thanks, Tiff. Um,
1: yeah, I didn't go public until... 2018, I finally told oh, my story wow. publicly. Wow! Um, so I'd spoken about it. Of course, I'd spoken about it over the years, and every place I go to, inevitably it comes up because you tell someone you've been a cop, and everyone wants to know, "Oh, what did you ever see or do?" Oh, and it's well. kind of the big news story, you know. Mm. Um, but I didn't publicly tell my story to the media until 2018 so that was 37 years after the bomb and And that had
0: quite a bit of purpose about it didn't it it sure did yeah yeah (laughs) what was his name Craig, Craig Minogue Craig Minogue and he is in prison for life now correct he is now yes he potentially wasn't going to be is that right no that's correct um so he had done his
1: twenty-eight years, which was life, which always I find always bizarre when how yeah. you say something's life when it's, when a, it's not. A, an end date of twenty-eight years. Yep. Um and had applied several times for parole. And this one particular time, it was basically, it was on and there was nothing more that we could do to ensure that he was going to stay in prison. And in fact, there had been a new law that had been cast and that meant that if a police person had been killed, the perpetrator of that crime would stay in jail for life, which would be the term of their natural life. And because this was retrospective, he was going to be eligible for parole. And so I heard about that on the radio, actually, on the way home from work that particular night and went. I've, You know, I, I say I want to be a survivor and all of that stuff, but it, some part of me, the little 21-year-old in me, often thought, what happens when he gets out of jail? Is he mm-hmm. going to come after me if I tell my story and I say I was there and blah, blah, blah. And, and so there was still a bit of fear in me for who I was and, and what the consequences of, of that could be. And this particular night I was driving home and heard that he was up for it and and it was going ahead and he was likely to get out. I went, I am not going to let that happen (laughs) and came home and um, sent a lengthy email actually to Neil Mitchell on 3AW and literally within about a minute of me hitting send, I had a phone call from his producer saying, we want to talk to you, Deb. And and really lovely of them, they kept – Checking in to make sure that I was okay, and I and I really did want to share this story publicly, and so um, I did because I I knew that this was my only chance again at actually making a difference and ensuring no other police person or family was ever to go through that again.
0: You, that is incredibly brave. That is probably this is such a courageous story to hear because. You know, just taking into account of the feeling of all those years holding on to that story, and then in a moment where the decision was not yet firm, like you're gonna, I'm gonna have a crack at keeping. So I'm, I'm gonna hone in and be the person that publicly tries to keep this guy in jail, but knowing in that moment that you know, like (laughs) it's not a given yet.
1: (laughs) No. No, definitely wasn't a given. Um, we were lucky to if Parliament, Parliament ended up, was in session that day <laughs> that I told my story and wow. um, apparently that caused a bit of a flurry at, at um, Parliament going, we need to talk to this woman. And um, and then I was on the news and things that night as well and Daniel Andrews, as the Premier, stood up and basically said, we've closed that loophole and, and he will remain in jail for the yeah. rest of his life. Oh, did, you, uh, did you throw the biggest party ever? Oh, no, actually, I think I think I took a, a, a big
0: sigh of relief and a big breath that what I'd done was the right thing. Do you think, God, I've had, I just keep getting goosebumps in this conversation. Do you think ever, do you ever sit down and think of the enormity of that change to the world or to Australia? Like the enormity is, it's not just one man, you've just changed a law that protects the people that protect people. The ripple effect of that change is phenomenal. Like, I wouldn't be able to sit back and have a story like that. <laughs> um, no, is the answer? Well, you should. I think tonight <laughs> when you sit down, you should pour yourself a cuppa and just think about, oh, it's amazing. And it's just so courageous. Well done. Thank you. I didn't I must- think of
1: it like that. I, I, I really thought that that. That was the moment in time and that was my time to stop hiding and 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 to come out to come out and to share my story and there was nothing wrong with my story other than my own fear that was stopping me telling
0: it yeah one last question and then we'll move on from that topic my question is that eight hours that you so this a bomb goes off if this thing happens and there's we have no idea what it is, and you're in the middle of it. And I mean, at first you think you're shot, and then yep. you and obviously you're in this the adrenaline fight or flight state for God knows how long, probably the whole eight hours and more, probably yep. bloody eight weeks. Yeah. But does it cross your mind? Did it cross your mind? This isn't over. Like, when's the next blow? What's happening next? We're under fire. This is dangerous. Absolutely. I should just get out. Absolutely, it did. Um, many times and, and particularly as
1: those rumors were reaching us you know because a copper on this point had come up and tell a copper on that point you know and have a little whisper and go yeah. this is what's going on and you know we now think there's this result
0: and um percent not soldiers you're not trained soldiers you're police officers metropolitan yeah, but, police officers <laughs> yeah that's true but
1: but who's going to protect everyone else? And you know, I think it's that old saying. And 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 I look, I look back at September 11. You know, mm. when you see those images mm. of the emergency service personnel that were running into those burning buildings mm. when everyone else was running out, it's the same scenario. You know, someone had to stand there and protect others. And at that
0: point in time, we were it. There were no soldiers. We were it. Oh you angel. Tell me about Yuri. Did I get that name right? You sure did. Tell yeah. Me about Yuri. Oh, what a beautiful story to move on to. Another
1: emotional one though. Um, <laughs> Yuri is now a young man with his own family who lives um in Ukraine. I won't say exactly where he lives. And back in nineteen eighty three no. Hang on, 87, (laughs) something like that. No, no, 1993, let me get it right. (laughs) I'm all over the place with my dates. 1993, Yuri ended up coming to our family as a foster child of um, what we thought was a legitimate organisation at the time called the Victims of Chernobyl. And they bought out 300-odd children whose parents were first responders to the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in uh, Ukraine. And as a police member, we were asked if we want to foster a child. And it was about a year beforehand that we were asked that question and we put our names down on the list. As it turned out, we heard nothing for a long time. And we were told that we were going to be given a lot of support and there'd be activities and everything for the kids. And don't worry, everyone will get together. It'll just be a wonderful thing to do and you'll have them for four weeks. And so we turned up in winter um, to the police academy this particular night to say, here's the children didn't know who we were getting and he was this little 11 year old boy called Yuri. And um, at that stage I had two sons and I was actually heavily pregnant with my third by the time he arrived. So not great timing. And um, this little boy turned up and came home with us and we didn't think he could speak a word of English because for the first few weeks he didn't. And um, communication was really light and you know, we tried to get him into our life and he arrived with a tiny little backpack. He had a um, couple of pairs of underpants, a T-shirt, and a pair of jeans and that's all we had with him. So we I knew within days we had to get out and buy him some clothes because my children were younger than what he was. Mm. And so we fostered this little boy. A couple of days into his visit, um, some reason I got a phone call from the Darren Hinch show. He was running a TV show at the time asking if I would do a media story. And uh, he'd heard we got one of these children, and I said, I'd love to, but let me talk to the organisers. And so, excuse me, I put a phone call into them to say um, media interest in doing a story, is that okay? And they went, oh, no, no, no media. And I kind of went, that's a bit weird. If you sent 300 children out from Ukraine to Australia, wouldn't you want to tell people about it? So that was the first alarm bell that went. And then, we had no activities organised and nothing was happening and we were trying to contact the organisers going what's going on and so got with the other local families um, in my area who also fostered a child to get the children together. Long story short, about three or four weeks in, we were told that Russian businessmen had... Um, basically tried to extort us and told us that they wouldn't send the children home unless we gave them a plane load of medical supplies and 250,000 US dollars. And so when I got that phone call, I then rang the media and said, Mm -hmm. you wanted a story. Have I got a story for you? Oh wow. And I remember going out to Tullamarine Airport in the middle of the night one night with a couple of other foster family members uh, because we were told the Russian businessmen were arriving and we wanted to front them (laughs) and um, go what's going on. They weren't they didn't turn up as it turned out but so we had a media storm around us Tiff for quite a number of months and Yuri ended up staying with us for three months. We got him home safely just before um, Christmas courtesy of johnny farnham who got involved (laughs) bless him he heard about the story and he happened to know nikki louder who owned louder air at the time and they said you want a plane we'll get you a plane and we promise we'll get the children home directly to kiev instead of by moscow and so
0: the 300 odd children were um, taken home safely just before christmas Oh my goodness! What what was the family situation of these children? It's like that. This is such a weird and terrifying. Yeah,
1: it's it's crazy. And and again, many of them didn't have telephones. We only had basically post. Um, Yuri did have a family friend that had a telephone, so we were able to put in. I think it was about two or three phone calls and speak to his parents to say they were delayed and he was still safe and that we would get him home and so when he finally did arrive home it was about six months before I received a letter back from his mum basically thanking us for looking after him as if he was our son and what a wonderful time he'd had.
0: Oh wow and so was it a legitimate thing that they got in the middle of and went hey let's also make a tonne of cash out of this or what was the whole thing orchestrated?
1: What we we heard, and I don't know that this was ever 100% confirmed, but we heard that the previous administrator of the legitimate organisation left the legitimate organisation and stole all of our records. And so she had all of our contact details. Oh,
0: hence the long time in contact.
1: Wow. Exactly. And so um, it was rolled out always with the intention that they were going to try and extort us. but you know, forgetting that they're actually dealing with other coppers across the other <laughs> side of the world. <laughs>
0: yeah. Talk about pulling on the heartstrings of people with the biggest heartstrings though. Hey. Like yeah, oh. Yeah. Um, and you speak to Yuri now. Yeah. So we lost contact
1: from that one letter, which I still actually have, from his mum six months later, then there was no contact ever. And it was back in 2017, Tiff, I happened to turn up at a car accident, obviously no longer a policewoman at all for a long time. Car accident happened in front of me on my way home from work in my local area and I stopped to help and the policeman that turned up said, oh, hi, Deb, you know, like, what are you doing here? And told him I'd stop to help. And he said, oh, out of the blue, have you ever heard from Yuri? And I said, no, I haven't. I said, don't tell me you've heard from Sasha. And he said, yes. And I said, how? And he goes, Facebook. So literally that night I went home on a bit of a mission and sent out about 20 messages um, trying to locate Yuri and then again heard nothing for about a year and one morning I woke up and here was this message saying hello Deborah my Australian mummy it's me it's Yuri (laughs) and so my first reaction was is it (laughs) you know I'm showing my husband the photograph of him because he's now a man in his 30s and I'm going do you think it's him and um, Yuri actually said to me he said I'm at work but when I get home tonight I'll write to you and he did that and along with with the message that he wrote me he He took a photograph of his bedside table and beside his bedside table, he had our family portrait.
0: Oh, I could cry right now. I'm so emotional.
1: (laughs) Yeah, pretty amazing. And um, so we've been in contact since. Um, We've been in frantic contact for the last year, since the 24th of Feb when we had visions in Australia of the tanks surrounding Ukraine and rolling in from Russia. Mm-hmm. And um, I was frantically messaging him going, we're seeing these terrible visions, are you okay? And he happened to put a voice call through to me and we spoke on the phone um, for about 40 minutes, Tiff, and it was um, probably one of the mo- the most emotional calls I've ever actually taken. and um, this one does make me emotional because he was basically wanted to tell me everything about his life at that stage and, um, and basically say goodbye to me because he didn't know what was happening. And um, so, yeah, it was about a 40 minute phone call. And, um, and I kept saying to him, what can I do? What can I do? I'm sitting here in Australia on the other side of the world and, um, And there's got to be something we can do. And his first reaction to me, in fact, he said it probably about six times on that call was, stop the skies, Deborah, stop the skies. If you can stop the skies, then we're okay. We can fight on the ground, but stop the skies. And I'm thinking, well, kind of, I've got no control over stopping the skies for you. And um, we had intermittent contact then for a over the next probably month, and I'd wake up every day and I'd be looking at my phone going, is he online? Has he been there? Um, is he okay? And um, it was really funny because one of those messages in those first few weeks of war, I actually shared with him about the Russell Street bomb. And because he didn't know as a little 11-year-old boy, I wasn't sharing that journey with him. Yeah. And I kind of I said to him, I'm not trying to take away from what you're going through in any way, shape or form. Mm. But I have some understanding of what the impact of one bomb's done on my lifetime Mm. and how, A, how hard it is, but also that you can recover. and, And as long as you have the right resources available to you and you talk about it and you stay safe, you can actually get through these monumental moments in your life. And I just wanted to share that with him. And, um, So we've had the most incredible conversations. Um, His father was one of the first on scene at Chernobyl all those years ago, but he's still with us, which is incredible. His mum passed away about six years ago of cancer, likely as a result of the nuclear fallout I'm imagining. Mm And finally one day, about I don't know, two months in from the war starting, I said to him, hang on, Yuri, I knit. Can I can I knit something for the kids? Not even contemplating how the hell I was going to get them over there. But um, and he said, Deborah, that would be amazing. You know, there's children that have been displaced, that have fled their homes, that have, have literally nothing but the clothes on their back. He said that'd be amazing. And so my first thoughts, Tiff, was maybe I could roll up a A 1,000 maybe between myself and my local community. Um, Still not contemplating how I was going to get them there in the middle Mm -hmm. of a war zone. (laughs) But um, a few weeks after I started that, I went to my work and I said to them, this is what's happening. I have a foster son in Ukraine. Um, He said that he would love me to knit some teddy bears and we have 45 retirement villages across Australia and New Zealand. I know there's a lot of people that like knitting. (laughs) What about we roll it out? And so we did. And um, 14,000 Yuri bears, named in his honour, are now on a boat. Oh, my <laughs> god! On their way to Poland. <laughs> and um, I'm joining them and and meeting them and then having probably the most incredible
0: reunion of my life in a few months' time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I love that. I'm, all, I'm speechless. I was going to say I'm always speechless. I am speechless <laughs> and that takes a lot. I don't think I've ever been speechless. I'm just filled with so much emotion. And I'm also so hyper aware that you must be also hyper aware that, A, in the middle of everything you've just witnessed in Ukraine, but even just going over there, you're you're going to a war zone. Yeah. Yeah. How I've much got, is I've... that in your awareness? Oh, every moment of my life at the moment. Isn't it um, amazing what you can do when you have a purpose? Yeah, 100%. And and every
1: village that I've walked into since we rolled out what we now call Project Yuri Bear, people have asked me, are they on the boat? Where are they? When are they getting into the hands of the children? And there has been so much love poured into these symbols of hope. And as Yuri said to me the other week, Tiff, um, he said, Deborah, our story started in tragedy. It continues in tragedy today. But he said, I don't think you realize what that one little teddy bear that you're going to hand over to a child actually means. He said, that is a sense of comfort and care and love and that people all the way on the other side of the world are thinking of us. And he said, that's going to be incredible so I feel like I'm taking thousands of people with me because it's not just been in our villages actually we've had an incredible response from the community I've had teddies sent to me from all over Australia with the most incredible letters attached to them we've had organizations like the Australian Craft Association Network um, that have knitted Teddies and gone into schools and got children to help stuff them. So there's just been this absolute drive and, and sense of purpose to mm. deliver this. And then what. we found an incredible aid organisation called Kiwi Care, and they were looking for toys because they're delivering aid, um, mostly medical aid, but directly into the front line in Ukraine. And they wanted some toys for the refugee camps and the schools and the hospitals for the kids. Oh, so match made in heaven.
0: <laughs> talk about kindness. Um, you know, in the middle of the pandemic and the years that we've had and just I think life of 2023, the impact, the social and the health impact and the mental health impact of a drive like that and the amount of people that get to be a part of it, whether they're here or helping get things there or they're the lucky people that are going to have a Yuri Bear land in their hands yeah. <laughs> and cause that changes people and that, and it causes a ripple effect and they'll pay it forward and they'll, they have something, they have a strength and a purpose that will live with them forever. You are like, I knew you were amazing before we started this conversation. You are, you have blown my mind. I'm yeah, really making me
1: speechless Tiff, and a little <laughs> embarrassed. But
0: thank you. <laughs> well, you've you have quite an impact. Your story and and everything that you're doing. I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to speak to you. Is there any is there anything you would like to promote in terms of? Can any of the listeners help you or follow you or find? You know, what would you like to promote? Um, well, funnily enough, I'm still after a few more bears, not too many, but I need to take some personally
1: in case there's any delays with customs so that when I actually arrive, I can hand some out. So I've made another hundred. I think I'm up to about a thousand myself, but but I'm wanting to take about 300. So if there's anyone that wants to help make a few more, um, they could certainly drop them into any of our Ryman villages in Melbourne, which would be amazing. All right. Um, And certainly... If you follow, if you jump onto Ryman Healthcare Australia, you can look at our social media posts and you can follow my journey. Um, We'll definitely be posting some updates once I'm over there. And and we're also hoping that we'll have a media organisation come with us, which we're in the middle of pitching at the moment. So uh, that'll be an incredible story. I'm taking personal leave to go into Ukraine so I can meet with Yuri and, um, yeah, spend some time with him and, and help deliver them to some of his local
0: communities as well. Wow, you're amazing. Um, I spoke one of my friends, Helen Zahos. She's a humanitarian and a paramedic, and she chases the disasters around the world. And she went to Ukraine, or oh, mid, like right in the midst of everything oh, wow. unfolding. Yeah, and she's much like you. She's this beautiful, <laughs> soft-spoken human. You just look at it and go, "Really, you're going to walk into a war?" You're like, "Really, Oh. You- well, Like you, some of, some of the toughest people are some of the softest angels. So I feel like I should introduce you to. I'd love some, to meet her. Yeah, she you would have some. She'd have some good good tips and stories for you. I'm definitely looking out for those. That's for sure. (laughs) Well, consider that introduction made. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for today. I'll make sure that we have the link to everything in the show notes so people can look you up and help out and make some teddies. And yeah, yeah. thank you so much, Deb. Pleasure, Tiff. It's been lovely to chat. I can't believe the time's gone as quickly as it has, but thank you for having me on. Amazing. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.